Well, friends, uh, today we're going to continue in our sermon series. So this fall we're looking at the Gospel of John, and we're looking specifically at John, um, specifically by, through the lens of Jesus and your blank. So last week we opened this up by considering Jesus and your questions. As uh, Jesus' first disciples, as he invited them to follow him, they had a lot of questions. And today we're going to be looking at John 2, verses, uh, actually verses 1 through uh, 12, and we're going to be considering Jesus and your joy. Uh, this is a passage that details Jesus' first miracle, and this miracle basically demonstrates that Jesus came for your joy. So let's look at this. Let's consider this. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word, which is God's word for you this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Friends, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this word, and we pray now for your blessing as we consider your word, as we consider what lesson we, your word has for our life today, but also as we consider who you are and what you sent your Son here to do in our lives this morning, and in all of human history. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Many people believe Christianity to be a buzzkill, where Christians are a bunch of prudes who prevent fun. And in a sense, I sort of get that. I grew up and I went to a Christian high school, and we were not allowed to dance at our prom, if for us to even dance at our prom, all the teachers would have to go home and we would be dancing with our dates before, in front of our parents. <laughs> we were not allowed to play cards and we were not allowed to drink. Even though we're underage, we had to assign that as well. Teachers even had to sign that they, were, they would not drink in front of families who would go to the school. And so, like, again, I sort of get that. I sort of get this idea that Christianity is a buzzkill, and that is a blatant lie. That is a very blatant lie. 
And so as we look at this text this morning, we actually see Jesus demonstrating that he actually comes for our joy. He, he wants to deal with this idea of, as, of Christianity being a buzzkill. That is a lie, and he wants to throw that out the window. Because what Jesus does is that Jesus shows up, and he turns a party into a celebration. And he literally restocks the bar so the party will go on. That's what Jesus does in his first miracle. Jesus came for your joy. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to really work our way through this passage to consider what happened. And as we do so, we'll be looking at um, some lessons for our life uh, today. So just diving into this passage, Jesus is at a wedding. Now, weddings in the ancient world, they were quite different from weddings that we go through in our, in our culture today. Because a wedding today, that may, it may be at 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, and then there's a reception afterwards. But uh, the bride and groom will go on their way very quickly um, uh, to enjoy married life at like 11 p.m. That's how it works. But within the Jewish world... The sweating celebration was not just a one-day event or a two-day event or a three-day event. This wedding celebration is a week-long event. It was a celebration. You needed plenty of food. You need plenty of wine and even wine more than food. And so the problem that we encounter quite quickly in our passage is that the wine runs out. And this is also something to highlight in a different, like, this is another difference because in our wedding culture, the bride's family is the one who typically pays for the reception. In the ancient culture, this was something that the groom did. The groom provided the food and the wine for the party. It was a sign that showed, it was a, something that he would do to demonstrate that he could plan things well, that he had enough funds to ensure that the party would go on. And so can you imagine all of a sudden the shame that this groom was going to encounter? That the first thing that he had to do as a married man was to provide food for this party, to provide wine for this party, and it's all out. So the party would come to an abrupt end. People would leave the wedding celebration. They would go back to their homes. They would not be talking about, oh, what a wonderful party that was. They would be like, can you believe that Joe Schmo of Cana ran out of wine? Imagine being the son-in-law having to stand in front of his in-laws to, just to really defend himself or to represent himself after that. There would be a lot of shame. So perhaps, as we think about why did the wine run out, yes, perhaps it's part of the uh, one reason could really be the poor planning. No matter what anything else would be, that would be the ultimate reality that the man would face. Perhaps it's a radical generosity. Because what's going on here is that Jesus is, goes to the wedding, his, his mom's there, but Jesus' disciples are also there. These guys are complete strangers, we just looked at them in John 1. This is just a couple of days later, so complete strangers are coming to the wedding. And this is another custom within the ancient world where complete strangers would come and to, to congratulate you. And, but you would, it was your responsibility to ensure that they um, 
would also be able to enjoy in this celebration because weddings are, were community events that you had to plan for unexpected guests. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, and she is likely a close friend of the family. She is a close friend, and she is helping out as like a wedding planner, helping out in the background with logistics. And so for some reason, as she finds out that the wine is gone, she comes to Jesus, and she says, Son, the wine is gone. They have run out. And that's verse 3. And so while Jesus' response, the very next words, as you read them in our translation, you read, woman, what does that have to do with me? Like, that's Jesus' response. I want to think about that for a moment. But, like, that seems very harsh. Like, we actually read a tone into it. We say, woman, what does that have to do with me? That's how we're thinking about it, if we're being honest. But Mary, Jesus' mother, only makes two appearances in this gospel. Her next appearance is John 19, verse 26. John 19 is when Jesus is on the cross. And what he says is one of the last sayings of Jesus. John 19, 26 says this, and this is when Jesus says to his mother, and he says to the disciple whom he loved, he says, woman, behold your son. What I want to point out to you is that, that this is actually just a way that sons would speak to their mother. But even right here in verse 26, we see it's actually a, a, a way of love and care. And so don't read a tone into this whatsoever. Because in what we see in John 19, 26, Jesus is ensuring that his mother would be cared for, that she would receive love and, and this tender care from the Apostle John, the one who actually writes this gospel. So let's not read a tone into it. Jesus is simply saying, Mom, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So let's think about that second phrase, the hour has not yet come. Jesus is referring here to his hour. And in the Gospels, this is pointing to what uh, one commentator, Bruner, says, the weekend, this is pointing to the weekend of his humiliation and his exaltation. See, what the hour is, is when he goes to the cross and dies for your sins, and he is exalted through being resurrected from the dead. And so that's what Jesus is pointing to. Jesus is actually saying that my hour for the time for people to know who I am has not yet come. That's what he's saying right there. But Mary tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to do. So what right there, we have a picture of an expectant faith. That once again in the Gospels, Mary is commended to, to us as an example to imitate as well. And so, do whatever he commands them. And so then right there, in verse 6, uh, we get, get some background information. Because there are six jars that are full of water for for the purposes of purification. And so within the Old Testament law, uh, you would have to take your dinner plate and your eating utensils. You would have to clean them. That's what this water is for. But And if you would not do that, you would actually be unclean. And so what Jesus is repurposing, repurposing these jars. He's repurposing them for, for something else. He turns water into wine. And that's a miracle. Just to say, that is a miracle. That is extraordinary. That does not happen. 
And so what is this miracle saying? By turning water into wine, Jesus is demonstrating something for us that we need to consider. He is demonstrating that he is the king who will one day bring about the real party. But it goes deeper than that. Because if you walked with God in the Old Testament time, you would have to keep all these purification laws that these jars symbolize for, for you. You would have to keep these purity laws in order to ensure your holiness. And this law of God was total. It was all-encompassing. It touched every aspect of your life, from your diet to how you would, yes, do the dishes, and much more clothing and much more. Because there were laws that would govern your morality over your clothing and your diet. The law is all-encompassing. But these jars represent something about the law that the, this, within the Old Testament mind that the law would lead to your purification. And so Leslie Newbegin, another commentator, he points out this. The water is for the rites of purification required by the law. Part of the whole ritual apparatus which is provided to keep Israel as a nation consecrated for the Lord in the world, in the midst of a world defiled by sin. Purification is a negative action. But the water, the water would remove uncleanness, but would never give the fullness of joy. So what does Jesus do here? He takes these jars full of water for purification rites, and he repurposes them. And Jesus is showing off. This is something to be clear. He is showing off because he's the one that showing and demonstrating that he is the one bringing the real party, the real celebration, and that things are going to be different now. Things are going to be different because he came. And he's giving a theatrical teaser of what his kingdom is going to be like. And if you are one of his followers, it's not going to be about the ceremonial rituals or, that, or the purification rites that are going to be keeping you clean. What's actually going to keep you clean is Jesus. And that the longer you follow Jesus, the better the party gets. And so here's a picture of this from the Old Testament prophet Amos. Amos 9, 13 and 14. And by the way, there's Five other verses very similar to this within the prophets. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. The, do not miss this picture. The kingdom of God is like wine in such abundance that it's flowing down mountains. That is what Jesus is actually demonstrating for us here. Jesus is, as I said earlier, restocking the bar to continue the party. These six purification jars, let's do some math. Each one of these jars could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Do the math, times six. He really, his first miracle is essentially creating 150 gallons of wine. Do not miss that. So this is what is happening in this passage. 
And yet we learn something about Jesus here. But before we get into this, I want us to think about what do we make of alcohol? What do we make of alcohol? And so I want us to think about our culture's understanding of joy, our culture's understanding of, joy, of celebration, and what in the world does alcohol have to do with that understanding? Because our culture loves a good time. This is illustrated for us by the hip-hop artist Asher Roth. Some of you may know that name. And he uh, was a, a freshman at Westchester once upon a time. And this is his song, I Love College. I'm not quoting the whole thing, just some verses. Do not listen to the whole thing. <laughs> some lyrics. Time's not wasted when you're getting wasted. Pass out at 3, wake up at 10, go out to eat, and do it all again. I love drinking, I love women, I love college. That is a very remarkable perception into what our culture's view of a party is. So what's the problem with this? There's a lot of problems with this. But I want to focus on one specific thing. Too much alcohol. The idea of intoxication it, uh, may be a form of escapism. It may be a form of self-medication. It could even be about... a abusing your body. And this is well documented by healthcare professionals and experts alike. And I'm not going to get into the, that data. But I am often asked that, where do you draw the line? And so how should we think about this biblically? Because Jesus, is, he restocked the bar, made 150 gallons. So how do we think about this? It's also important to note, point out and, and notice that with the first time within Christian history that Christians were actually told that drinking is a sin, no nuance, no moderation, no, no nothing whatsoever, was in the 19th century. So it's re that the idea of uh, teetotalers is a relatively new thing. But there are several things I want us to consider biblically very briefly, and these are all bullet points in my notes. But Scripture speaks to each one of these things with remarkable clarity. That is something that we all need to weigh when we think about the fact that there's 150 gallons of wine here. The first is that we are called to take care of our bodies. Scripture says quite clearly that our bodies are temples. We want to, to take care of them. But we also are told that, uh, that while physical exercise is of value, spiritual exercise, godliness is of even greater value. That's First Timothy. In Colossians, we actually see Paul saying that we are not ascetics who are trying to punish our bodies. The point is, take care of your body. That's the first thing. The second thing is practicing self-control. That this is, in fact, one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. That the fruit of the Spirit is Self-control. What's fascinating is that when Paul gives his defense to the Christian faith, he talks about the righteousness of Christ. This is Acts 24, 25. But he also explains self-control. This is kind of fascinating to think that self-control is actually an essential part of the gospel in Paul's presentation when he defends the Christian faith. So as we are called to take care of our bodies, we also need to practice self-control. And then the third thing that is that something that we are, have actually considered it is that uh, wine is a good thing. Our prayer of adoration from Psalm 104 is that wine gladdens the heart. That's also in Ecclesiastes. So it's intended to gladden the heart. So enjoy a good drink. 
But then lastly, and this is also important, is that is a liberty of conscience. This is developed in Paul's letters, uh, yes, in, Roman, to, in Romans and in, in Corinthians and elsewhere. But there's several examples that are given, and one's going to be uh, food sacrifice to idols. Some were bothered by that and said that this is sinful. And, and so Paul says, then accommodate their conscience. Don't shame them. Don't condemn them. Accommodate them because they are your brothers. So it's just to point out something that love is more important than a good drink. Then on the other side, he says that, but if your conscience says it is free, then enjoy and go ahead. And so where, where we are at is that these are some things to consider. There's more things to consider for sure. But balancing and discerning these four things together is an issue of wisdom and discernments. Because some families have a history of alcoholism, and so stay away from it. It's why to avoid it. Others who battle addiction, they already know that their bodies have already been dependent upon it, and so they avoid it. And a friend of mine put it in a different way. Because he discerned that, his, that he had an unhealthy attachment to alcohol, that alcohol was too important to him in his life. And so he decided to not have a drink for an entire year. And here are his words, and he wrote these words to me in July of 2020. I don't know, highlight 2020 for a moment. It's hard, this way says, it's hard to compare different phases of my life. But I'm not exaggerating when I say that this may have been the best 12 months of my life. So, a year ago, we had just gotten a dog. I was not sleeping well. I was not exercising, and I was drinking too much. So I completely abstained for 12 months. For the sake of my health, and that went well. There have been some really good health developments for me. But something far greater has happened that I did not set out to accomplish. I found a self-respect and dignity I did not know was missing. I found the joy in my family and home and gardening I did not know I could have. And my heart is different. I love my wife differently, better, I would say, although you should ask her. If I had to sum up what's different in one word, I would say gratitude. My heart is filled with gratitude for all the gifts and beauty in my life. I did not set out to get that. I had no control over any of these outcomes. This is simply God's grace and presence in my life. And it's in the midst of maybe the hardest year I've ever gone through. God has shown me unexpected, unanticipated kindness. I started out simply not wanting to die a premature death, but now I actually want more holiness. And I want more God. I want to be with him more often, and I want to celebrate his goodness with him. That is incredibly beautiful. That I hear something that is incredibly good, that, we, that you never know what other forms of God's goodness and kindness you may experience is if you say no to it for a while. So, so another story, uh, several years ago, I was talking to a friend who was ministering at the University of Delaware. And Delaware has 20,000 university students, and it's also known as a party school like Westchester down the road. And this, Nick asked, my friend Nick asked the question, how do we show a party-crazed culture that we as Christians have something more delightful to offer? When you think about America... 
There, there, or think about the world. There's one city that stands out that is known for throwing world-class parties. New Orleans. Ray Kanata, a good friend of mine, he is a pastor there, and this is what he wrote. Christians are not supposed to be celebration lights. We should enter into the culture's celebration and add our own unique ingredients to the party gumbo. I love that Louisiana word there, gumbo. But here's the highlight. The difference is we should not be celebrating as an escape to distract us from the brokenness. Again, the difference is that we do not celebrate. We we should not be celebrating as an escape to distract us from the brokenness. We are the only ones who have the kind of hope that should give us a real reason to celebrate. We know the bridegroom is coming. We know that the real party is awaiting us. And so as you think about this within all Scripture, the Old Testament language for celebration is feasting. And I want to highlight this because our day of fasting kicks off um, later on today. Because feasting is this discipline of celebration and abundance. But one of the ways that you can uh, practice feasting is by not counting calories and enjoying your food and with your friends. But there's also space for fasting as well. But the point I want to draw out from all this is that we need to learn how to celebrate. We need to learn how to feast. We need to know how to throw better parties. And we should be taking the bigger risks, inviting everyone whom we meet to come to the party. We should be spending lavishly for the best elements, not being stingy, Because we know what is coming. We should be famous for being the most creative because we serve and worship and are indwelled by God who devised and created the entire universe. That the creator lives within us. And we should be the most open and generous host because we serve a hospitable God willing to go to the cross, to face abandonments, and to encounter hell to make an eternal place for us. That's what God does for us. And God brings us to his table so that we can participate in the real banquet, in the real feast, in the real party. And that we should also celebrate often because we have life with God today. So to go back to my friend Nick's question, what do we have to offer a party-crazed culture? We have life with God. Jesus came so that we would have life and to have it abundantly. Jesus came for our joy. We have the joy of life with God. That is something worth sharing, and that's worth celebrating all the time, without fail. Let's pray.